You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your host, Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli. And today we're going to discuss how to estimate how much bonus depreciation you can receive on properties you either acquire directly or with partners or bonus depreciation you may receive by investing in a syndicate or fund. So we'll stay tuned for that. But before we dive into today's episode... If you're a do-it-yourself landlord managing rental properties, Landlord Studio is made for you. The software helps landlords simplify income and expense tracking. With their easy-to-use app, you can digitize receipts, record income and expenses in real time, generate reports, and even manage leases and tenants. Plus, Landlord Studio makes late rental payments and bank visits a problem of the past with secure online rent collection. Get the rent paid directly to your bank account, and you can even automate rent reminder emails and late payment fees. Landlord Studio is also the best way to stay tax compliant. They offer a range of financial reports, including Schedule E and supplier expense reports designed for tax time. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com CPA and use the coupon code realestatecpa at checkout to get 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com CPA and use the code realestatecpa to get 25% off your plan today. Today. Now, before we really jump into the episode, Tom, I have a very important question for you. Bitcoin is down big. Yeah, big. the The stock market is down big. Yeah. What are you doing? What What, right. are, what are you doing? Because I'm following. I'm I'm on Team Tom here. All right, Tom, all right. Tom's always got great investment advice. Or sorry, this is not investment advice. For, this is we're not, not your financial advisors, this but is this is just an opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a right. conversation. So here here's the deal, right? So. Stock market first. Let's look at the stock market. So here's my personal experience with this recently. Towards the end of last year, October, November, December, I kind of realized the market ran up about 34% if you look at the S&P 500. And I kind of got FOMO, like, oh my God, the market's going up. And I went and put the money that I had earmarked to invest in the stock market into the market out of fear that the market would just keep going up and that I would keep losing. But in the back of my mind, I knew that a correction could very well be coming. So I made an emotional decision to do that. In other words, I broke Warren Buffett's rules. The cardinal rules are be fearful when others are greedy. So everybody was being greedy. They're trying to squeeze out the last returns. They're running up the market before the end of the year. I should have been fearful, stayed in cash. And then I should be greedy when other people are fearful. So everybody's fearful right now. The market's down like 8% this year, uh, so far year to date. And this is when I should have been putting the money in. Now, mm. having said that, this is my experience. So just take that and just, you know, that's just the emotions that go into the market. Having said that, I did put my money in at the, close to the top and the market's now down about 8%. So what am I doing? I'm just sitting on my holdings because I know that the S&P 500, historically, it's always came back 100. It's always returned higher than before 100% of the time in the history of the United States. So I know long-term, that this money will eventually come back and it'll earn a return. So while I'm a little bummed out, I could have bought in at 8% below the high, high. I bought in a little higher than that. I know in the long run that it'll be fine. So I'm staying strong. I'm going to hold on. I'll probably buy some more. 
that's what I'm doing. Are you going to continue to add to your position? So I know that you can do like the dollar cost averaging strategy. Like, is that something that you're going to, you're going to be doing? So what I did was I front loaded my IRA this year to take advantage of this dip. So I have to pay myself back the way I budgeted my money. I have to pay myself back for front loading that IRA. But I do have some cash that I'm sitting on that I will be putting into the market soon, very soon. Something else that I'm going to be doing too is, so I've invested in my brokerage account. I have VTI, which is the total stock market index. That's down about 7 to 8% based on this down. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell it, right? And I'm going to recognize a capital, a short-term capital loss because I bought it within less than a year. I'm going to buy VOO, which is the S&P 500. Now the S&P 500 and VTI track very, very, they're very, very correlated, very correlated. So what I'm doing is I'm cashing in on a short-term capital loss, immediately buying VOO. I'm avoiding the wash sale rules. And I'm a nice little short-term capital loss for 2022. But you'll effectively be in the same position, tracking the same, effectively, the same yes. group of stocks. Right. V, VTI, VOO have slightly different bucket of stocks, but it's if you look at the way they trend, uh, they're almost the same thing. So Interesting. talk about front loading your IRA. What do you mean? So basically I'm phased out of the traditional IRA limits at this point. So I can't make deductible traditional IRA contributions, nor can I make Roth IRA contributions, unfortunately. So I just put the max in 6K into a traditional IRA, immediately converted it to a Roth IRA, which is risky to do at this point because it's a little uncertainty, but I'm taking the risk. And the reason why I did that is because I would prefer to dollar cost average $500 a month into the market. But because I'm doing a backdoor Roth, it's easier for me, just it's easy for anybody in this position to put 6K cash into a traditional IRA, immediately convert it to a Roth. So you're not paying any taxes because there's no earnings. It's all your, your principal and then invest it through your Roth and not invest it to your traditional. So I decided to do that because I saw the market taking a dip. I'm like, let me take advantage of this dip through the Roth IRA, probably not the most optimal thing that I could have done, but definitely not the worst. So that's what yeah. I meant by front loading my IRA. Just to be clear, that is considered a backdoor Roth IRA conversion that is in the, um, or was, I guess, in the Build Back Better Act as being potentially eliminated or proposed to be eliminated. But that plan's pretty much dead now. I mean, I know that right. they're, they're, they're talking about breaking it up and passing pieces. I think it's like really focused on the green energy portion of the plan. But yeah, I mean, the, the entire plan is is pretty much dead at this point. So you basically looked at it and said, you know, there's risk, but I'm willing to accept the risk that that yeah. this this portion of the plan will not be passed at some point. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do this backdoor. Yeah, I did back. some research on it. And a lot of people think these are one or three things are going to happen, right? Either nothing passes, right? And there's no issue. So nothing happens and you're good. The other thing is they could pass it and they can make it retroactive. They can make it starting like the date it passes, right? And beyond. So you'd be fine if you did it before then, or they make it retroactive to January 1st, 2022. But then they would have to give someone an out. They have to give people an out to like reverse it. And, you know, there'd be some, maybe some additional forms you'd have to fill out. But basically that's the sentiment right now of the people who are talking about this. This is what financial planners are thinking right now is how it's probably going to go. So I'm willing to take that risk. Worst case scenario, the way I look at it is there'll be some retro dated back to the first of this year and they'll give some out for the people who did it. That's my expectation of the worst case scenario and why I did it. And I think probably if they do pass anything, it'll probably be effective that date forward, most likely. 
but we'll see. We'll see. I took a risk. We'll see. All right. So before we go right in Bitcoin, we have to touch on Bitcoin, the crypto markets too. So the crypto markets are down. I think today it's down to as low as $34,000 on, on Bitcoin, which is a bit down about $34,000 from a tie or, or more. I forgot its exact tie. So what I'm doing on Bitcoin is right now, if you know the investment philosophy would be if you truly believe in Bitcoin, Bitcoin's long-term potential is put money in now because it's historically low compared to its high. And if it comes back, you know, now would be the time to buy. But unlike the stock market, there's not enough historical timeline to know that Bitcoin's 100% going to come back, right? Like I said before, if the S&P 500, historically, it's always, whenever it took a dip, whenever it crashed, it always comes back 100% of the time, historically speaking. Bitcoin, we don't have that timeline. You know, the S&P 500 is made up of the top 500 companies in the United States. Bitcoin is just one coin and there's other cryptos. The point is, Right now, if you truly believe in crypto, now's the time probably to put some money in. But if you're a little skeptical of it, uh, you might want to be cautious because there's no guarantee that it's going to come back. We only have 10 years of history with crypto, really. And we have 100 and plus years of the US economy and stock market. So that's kind of my sentiment. You know, If you truly believe in Bitcoin, it's down. It's a buying opportunity, as most people would would say, but you have to understand that there's no guarantee that it will come back. We have a very short time, historical timeline of what we know about Bitcoin right now. Yeah. I, uh, over the past couple of months, have gotten bullish on crypto and, and Bitcoin and all the different projects that you can stake coin in and everything. And I mean, just ask anybody on my team, I'm talking about it constantly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I put like $2,000 in early December and now I've got I think I'm down 800 bucks now. So I'm down about 1200, yeah. $1,200. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, $2,000, no big deal. But what I did is I started reading the alternative point of view for Bitcoin. So like the negative, the, um, the antagonist, I guess, point of view for Bitcoin. Yeah. And I started doing some of that research over the past couple of days. And because I think it's important to just balance, right? Like yeah. it's important to read why something's so great and read all the sources on that. But you have to find balance. You also have to read why it's bad and when what the negative case is for it. And I read an article that was really interesting. The article's premise was that Bitcoin is worse than a Ponzi scheme because it acts the same way in the sense that the price only goes up if people buy in, right? Right. Because there's no underlying business. There's no underlying value creation, right? right? It's a coin. It's just something to store value. So it only goes up as people buy into it. But just like a Ponzi scheme does it, you can pay out the returns as people continue to buy in. But when people stop buying in, that's when you start to see the price slide. That's when the Ponzi scheme starts to fall apart. But the difference is that when Bitcoin if, sorry, I should say if and not when. I am still pro Bitcoin, by the way. So don't, nobody, I've read all the negative stuff, but I'm still pro Bitcoin. So don't take this negatively and also don't take that as investment advice. I'm not a financial planner and this is just my opinion. But as Bitcoin goes to zero, there's nobody to sue to recover funds. Right. Whereas a Ponzi scheme that goes to zero, you can sue and generally recover funds. And so the article, it was really, it was really interesting. The guy at the end, his summary paragraph was like, people that own Bitcoin, when it reaches zero, you're going to wish it was a Ponzi scheme. And I was like, whoa, man, that is a heck of a statement. 
Well, you know, the thing about Bitcoin, it's it's an open network. No one controls Bitcoin at this point. It's it's such a wide network that it's it's a peer-to-peer network. So everybody owns a piece of Bitcoin as part of the network and there's no centralized control. So whereas a Ponzi scheme, there usually is someone in control. So that's a good point. You know, th- th- Did you read that article? Because no, <laughs> I, I, I didn't think about that. But you must, no. It sounds like you read that article. No, I, I didn't. I did. I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And I'm like, well, yeah. a Ponzi scheme, someone's controlling it. Someone's raising the money. Bitcoin just an open network. It's just like something on the marketplace that, you know, to your point, though, the value of it is, is just derived on supply and demand at this point, at least with the S&P 500 or stocks. You know, or, or real estate, there's intrinsic value to those things, right? right? Like you're buying a, a piece of stock, you know, you're buying an interest in a company that's generating value. Like if you buy a piece of Apple stock, Apple is generating a lot of money, right? A lot of money every year as they sell their iPhones, their, you know, the iPads, et cetera. They're actually a cash running, generating machine. Bitcoin doesn't have that. Bitcoin's just a way to store right. and transfer value. And its value is only derived from people who believe in it. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, I think we've talked enough about yeah. things that are speculative and outside of our area of expertise. Everything that you just heard was uh, an opinion. So right. Right. <laughs> don't, it's not to don't be take action and come back and blame us later. Um, we don't know yeah. what we're doing either. <laughs> yeah, it's for informational purposes only. Uh, you should yeah. consult your own tax, legal, and financial advisors before entering to any transaction. Okay. <laughs> so if you're thinking of buying one stock of Apple, Go speak to your financial advisor first, just in case. It's like a, it's like a PPM <laughs> for syndicates. If you ever read a PPM for syndicates, it's hilarious because the PPM, it's a private placement re- memorandum. And the whole point is to educate investors about the deal sponsor. So if Tom went and like raised $10 million to buy some big apartment complex, he would need a PPM. And the PPM would explain to investors who Tom is and all the risks associated. But it's so funny because like the PPM is... Uh, some, some of these that I read, it's like professional trash talking. <laughs> it's like, this guy has no idea what he's doing. Do not invest with him. And then people go and invest with him anyway. Your, money they, they make, make your money. investment could go to zero. In fact, yeah, your investment yeah. is likely to go to zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is going to steal your money. Do not invest with him. <laughs> uh, no, we haven't actually seen PPMs like that, but we have seen some PPMs that it is kind of funny how they talk about the deal sponsor himself, him or herself and uh, the risks associated with investing with that one specific individual. But anyway, we, we've been talking too much, man. Let's get to the episode. Uh, thanks for hanging in there. I know that we did something a little bit different today, but the uh, stock market's crashing. Wanted to talk about it. So, so let's talk about bonus depreciation. Go ahead. All right. So the first thing we're going to cover is how to estimate the amount of bonus depreciation you can potentially get on a property you acquire directly. So let's just say you buy a million dollar apartment complex, right? Let's just say you go out, you buy a 10 unit somewhere for a million bucks. I don't even know if you can buy those for a million bucks anymore, but let's just say somewhere you can. Now, the question a lot of investors may have is, oh, how much bonus depreciation can I get back? Because sometimes you may have a large capital gain or a lot of passive income that you generate in the current year, and you're looking for a way to offset that through depreciation or passive losses that are generated by depreciation, or primarily generated by depreciation. So you have a million dollar building, how much can you expect? So as a rule of thumb, so this is just a rule of thumb, a back of the napkin type thing you could use. Somewhere between 20% and 30% of the property's purchase price is going to be allocated to five and 15 year property, which is tangible personal property and land improvements. Land improvements are things like sidewalks, grass, pools, decks, things of that nature. So let's just say that that million bucks, you're going to get 20% 
you could expect a $200,000 depreciation expense to a $300,000 depreciation expense, depending on all the specific details of the property. If you want a more accurate estimate, you're going to have to get one from the cost seg company. But if you're shopping properties and you just want to know, okay, if I buy this property, how much can I expect? Just know 20% in the low end, 30% in the high end. I'd probably say 30% is usually pretty high. We don't see that too often. So you probably want to stick somewhere between 20, 25%. Just know that that's the range and how you estimate how much bonus depreciation you can get from acquiring a property directly. And, and real quick on that, you you do have to take into account your specific geographic location right. and how land values are uh, fluctuate per state and per location. So for example, if you're in California and you're listening to this right now, your ratio is probably going to be more like 15% of the total purchase price because land values are so high in California. You don't, you don't cost seg. I know that this isn't what you meant. And I say the same thing to people too, just in terms of getting a general back of the napkin estimate. But I think some people would take it as, oh, 20 to 30% of the purchase price is what I can cost seg. Technically, when you buy a property, you have to strip the land value out first. So on that million dollar, you know, 10 unit, maybe $100,000 is allocated to land. So we're talking about $900,000 building value and you cost segregate that. And you might get 30% on the 900,000 and that would yield $270,000 of bonus depreciation, right? But where did that just fall? $270,000 of bonus depreciation on 1 million is 27%. So we're actually within Tom's back of the napkin range. That's why we come up with those back, just to simplify it for people, right? Just 20 to 30% of the purchase price is probably where you're going to fall. And we did in that example, 27%, $270,000. But if I'm in California, right. my land value might be $600,000 on that 10 unit apartment complex. So my building value is only $400,000. 30% of that is $120,000. $120,000 is my bonus depreciation. But if you compare that to the total purchase price, now we're talking 12%. So if you're in if you're in a, a jurisdiction where the property assessor like jacks up the land values or or land is 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 just so extremely high in price, your cost segregation study like that back of the napkin is not going to apply to you. You you should probably estimate the land value and then do maybe twenty five to thirty percent of the building value to really get a good estimate there. But that, that's how you do it. It's just an extra step for you. You take your purchase price or your projected purchase price. You go onto the property assessor database. You can, it's all public. It's all online, very easy to find. I think Texas has a couple issues though. We always struggle with Texas for some reason, but all these other states, it's all online, all publicly available. You just go onto the property assessor database. You type in your property address that you're acquiring and you just look at the land value compared to the total value on the property assessor database. You take that ratio and you apply it to your purchase price. And that's the land value on your purchase price that you're going to have to strip out for purposes of, of doing a cost segregation study. Right, right. If you guess if you really wanted to get it a little bit more accurate, you could find their land ratio, pull the land value out of the property. That'd also be an estimate. And then just run the, the back of the napkin rule of thumb against the actual building itself for more accurate projection. If you're doing due diligence on properties, you'd probably want to do that probably after you consider that property already being a viable investment for you, just so you're not spending time pulling property tax cards of every single property you might come across. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would be the more accurate way for sure. Yeah. 
All right. So that's on direct properties. Now, if you're with partners, um, you're going to have to take you know the percentage allocations, the profit allocations that you guys have into account. So if you're 50-50 with a partner, you know, you're going to expect half of that to be passed through to you, assuming you, you split profits, all profits and losses equally 50%. So that's just how it's going to work with a partnership. Just understand that, that you're not going to get 100% of it unless you specially allocate it to yourself, which we're not going to talk about today. Now, so you estimate your bonus depreciation, right? So we, we buy this million dollar 10 unit apartment complex. It's $250,000 of bonus depreciation. That's great. But what is my actual tax loss? That's what you also need to be estimating, right? Right. So you really need to build out a pro forma, right? You need a spreadsheet that's going to estimate the rents that I'm collecting, the expenses that I'm going to incur, and then throw depreciation in there as an expense. Throw your 250K of depreciation there as an added expense. And then that Excel sheet, that projection, that pro forma will show you a projected tax loss. Because, you know, I, I make this mistake sometimes where I just kind of talk about bonus depreciation and that also being the tax loss. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, if I buy an apartment complex in February and it's going to cash flow all year, uh, I might have 120K or so of cash flow by the end of this year. I don't know if that if those numbers make sense on a 10 unit. So don't hold me to that if you're listening and you're trying to like do that. I'm just making these numbers up. But I might cash flow 120K this year. So if I take 250K of bonus depreciation, I'm going to subtract out my net operating income. And I, I use those words interchangeably, even though I know, again, that they're not interchangeable. But if you're, if you're listening, I'm just trying to make a simple example here. 120K of cash flow, 250K of bonus depreciation. My spread's $130,000, right? That's the variance. So I've got $130,000 tax loss, not a $250,000 tax loss. Now, the bonus depreciation still did its job. It sheltered $120,000 of cash flow from taxes. Right. Pretty darn good. Right. Right. Pretty darn good. And now I've got an extra $130,000 tax loss. And that's where I start applying the passive activity loss rules to figure out, is it in my passive bucket or my non-passive bucket? Can I move it into my non-passive bucket? Do I need to move it into my non-passive bucket? So that's where you go back to the episode we just recorded last week and and re-listen to that and apply those rules to figure out what do I do with this $130,000 tax loss? But it's just important to, to walk away from this knowing that bonus depreciation does not equal tax loss. You have to factor in the rental income I'm going to receive and the net operating expenses that I'm going to pay and then add depreciation on top of that. That's going to get you your tax loss. And it might be more and it might be less. It just kind of depends on the timing of the acquisition. If I buy a property on 1231, my bonus depreciation is probably going to be my tax loss because there's no rental income. There's no expenses, right? Or if they are, they're probably a wash. So my bonus depreciation is going to be my tax loss. But if I buy property early in the year, my bonus depreciation, it's not going to be my tax loss. My tax loss will probably be less because I've got a whole year of, of operating income from this property. And it's important to understand this concept too, because we're about to talk about syndications, how, how you can estimate the bonus depreciation coming out of a syndication. And a lot of the same rules apply. It's figuring out the bonus depreciation that I, I'm going to be able to claim and then applying that to my pro forma to figure out how much tax loss I have. And now you're just doing it on bigger properties if we're talking about you know the case of a syndication and you've got a lot of partners. So it's a little bit more complicated, but it's the same general premise of I'm buying a property, I'm estimating my bonus depreciation, and I'm estimating my net operating income. Yep. That's what you're going to have to do to get the tax loss. So having said that, let's just jump right into the syndication side of things. And so I know, Brandon, you gave a really good explanation on, I think, a YouTube video we did on this. So do you want to you jump in on that one? 
Yeah, sure. All right, hold on one second, Brandon. Before you dive right into the explanation, we do want to let everybody know that on our next podcast, we'll be announcing a brand new boot camp for landlords and buy and hold real estate investors. If you want to stay in the loop on the boot camp and related special offers, join our Tax Smart Investors Facebook group by visiting www.facebook.com slash group slash Tax Smart Investors or by searching for Tax Smart Investors on Facebook. We'll see you in there. But for now, Brandon, back to you. So a really simple way to estimate the tax loss that will be passed back to you when you are investing in a syndication. I'm going to explain that. You need a couple things though. You, you need the operating agreement from the syndication. You need an open line of communication with the general partner or general partners of the syndication, not the person raising capital, right? Because I can be a capital raiser. I can you know, raise a million bucks and you know, somehow work out a, an agreement with the GP to bring my million dollars into the deal and own part of the deal. You know, you see that out there, but you want a direct line of communication to the actual sponsor of the deal because they're the ones holding all the tax cards, right? Now, typically this is going to be in the operating agreement. So, but just in case there's any questions, when you invest in a syndication, if I put a hundred thousand dollars into a syndication with bonus depreciation today, we are seeing K1s come back with 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollar passive losses passed back, Right. So the question is, when I put $100,000 in or a million dollars in or $500,000 or $50,000 in to a syndication, how much of that investment is going to come back to me in the first year as a tax loss? That's what we're going to cover. So what you need, you need the operating agreement, you need the pro forma, you need the projection, and and ideally an open line of communication with the general partner. Here's where you start. So you go to the operating agreement. Step one, go to the operating agreement. Go to the profit and loss section of the operating agreement. How are they allocating tax losses? Okay. And, and actually, this isn't really step one. You could do this at any step, but how are they allocating tax losses? A lot of operating agreements, I would say probably the most equitable, not necessarily the best, but the most equitable operating agreements are ones that say any losses generated from this, this partnership activity will be passed to to our members of the, the to our A class members and those are typically the investors right we're going to pass them to our limited partners in the deal so we're going to pass all tax losses to our limited partners until their aggregate capital account reaches zero dollars and what does that mean that means if I put a hundred thousand dollars into the deal I'm going to get a hundred thousand dollars of tax losses back before the sponsor can claim any tax losses now if I'm an investor in these syndications that's exactly what I want to see. I don't want to see that I'm going to put $100,000 into the deal and I'm only going to get 50% of the tax losses while the sponsor is going to get 50% of the tax losses because I'm the one taking the financial risk here, right? So I want the tax benefits since I'm taking the, the financial risks. So I get all the tax benefits first. Once you max out my tax benefits, I could care less what you do about your own, but we're not splitting tax benefits until mine's maxed out. That's kind of what I think is the most equitable way to approach these syndications. So you have to look at that profit and loss section because sometimes the loss sections say, we're going to split losses pro rata based on your uh, economic interest in the deal. And what that means is if I own a 5% stake with my $100,000 contribution, I get 5% of the tax losses. And the general partnership could own 30% of the LLC, but they could have put $0 into the deal and they're going to get 30% of the tax losses. And they can probably claim those tax losses thanks to something called qualified non-recourse debt which allows them to claim tax deductions against the basis that qualified non-recourse debt provides them. 
So it's beneficial for them. So you might see deals structured that way. And it's not necessarily wrong. You just need to have a conversation with them about why they've structured it that way. And then you need to decide if that deal's right for you. That would probably not be something that I'm investing in unless the deal is sweetened in some additional manner. Because again, I want to see all the tax benefits coming back to me as the investor until I can't claim any more tax benefits. So I put $100,000 in, I get to claim $100,000 tax loss. You can pass that back to me. I can't claim anything else. My basis cannot be reduced below zero as an investor in these deals, unless I'm allocated any qualified non-recourse debt, but that we'll talk about that on a different episode. All right. So you're, you're looking at the operating agreement. You're trying to figure out how are these tax losses allocated to the partners? And let's just assume that it says we're going to allocate 100% of the losses to our limited partners, our, our investors, until their capital accounts reach zero dollars. All right. Well, I just explained to you, my capital account is my $100,000 contribution minus any losses allocated to me. So if I put 100K in and I get allocated 100K back, my capital account is now $0. I would have, we would have met that provision in the operating agreement. But if I have 100K in the deal and I only get allocated 90 back, now my capital account is $10,000. So if you see this in your operating agreement, in that profit and loss section where it says, we're gonna allocate to our limited partners until their capital accounts reach zero, you need to know what the aggregate capital account is. You need to know how much money they're raising. And this is going to be important in a second on estimating what this actual bonus depreciation is going to do for you. So you need to know how much money the whole deal is raising. Because if they're raising $3 million from all of the limited partners, now you know that a $2.7 million tax loss created by this investment it's 90% on the total aggregate capital raised, right? You also know or should expect that you're going to get 90% of your investment back as a tax loss. So you want to know what the aggregate money raised. And that's why you have to have an open line of communication with the actual sponsor of the deal, because you need to ask them, how much money are you raising for this deal? What's the total capital that you're looking at? It might be 1 million, might be 500K, might be 10 million. You need to know. Because the next step here is we're going to take their pro forma. Now, most sponsors are going to give you a pro forma in their deal packet. And a pro forma is just like, here's what we expect to do in year one, two, three, four, five. You know, here's our plan to make money. And here's our budget, estimated income, estimated expenses, yada, yada, yada. So they're going to do all of that. They're going to give you their estimated expenses. We don't see pro formas with depreciation factored in. So if you have depreciation factored in, you have an extra step of trying to figure that out. But most of the time, it's just rental income minus operating expenses. So you, you got to get that. Right. And let's just say that the pro forma that you get shows $100,000 of net rental income after all the expenses. So net income is $100,000. Cool. So you've got that locked in. You got to remember that number $100,000 of net operating income from this deal. The next thing that you do is you go to the general partners again and you ask, Hey, are we doing a cost segregation study on this property? And if so, do you have an estimate as to the amount of bonus depreciation? we're going to claim. Typically, they've already got quotes during the due diligence phase, even before they close. So they should be able to tell you. If they don't tell you, you can press them a little bit. Well, well just what do you think? Like, what is an estimate? Because I'm trying to estimate the tax losses I'm going to get passed back to me. So maybe they say, maybe we're buying a $10 million building, right? And, and all these questions you've asked, you've, you've recognized that they are raising $3 million to buy a $10 million apartment complex. 
So $3 million is our aggregate capital account. You got to remember that number. Um, they tell you that they have done cost segregation estimates and they're expecting a $2.8 million bonus depreciation deduction. Okay. So $2.8 million is going to be an expense on their PL in the first year. They tell you that they are going to claim bonus depreciation. So you're excited about that. And the pro forma that they gave you showed $100,000 of net operating income. So all you have to do is take that $2.8 million of bonus depreciation, you subtract the 100K of net operating income, and you're left with $2.7 million of expense. And basically, it's a $2.7 million tax loss. And then you apply that $2.7 million tax loss to the entire amount of capital raised, $3 million, and you get a ratio of 90%. And you take that 90% and you apply it to your amount invested of $100,000. So you know that you should receive about a $90,000 tax loss passed back to you. Again, assuming that our operating agreement checks out the way that I said it should. And that means that if you get a K-1 at the end of the year with $50,000 of tax loss passed back to you, you should go and ask further questions. That's what it means. Because something didn't align, right? Maybe they earned more money, which is great for you at the end of the day. Or maybe they just got wonky accounting and somebody messed up, which happens. You would be surprised. So that is how you estimate. You know, When you hear about people getting these massive tax losses back, the cool thing is that you can estimate all this stuff before you ever pull the trigger on investing in a syndication because these simple steps, the operating agreement is distributed to you before you invest. The pro forma is distributed to you before you invest. A 10-minute call with the sponsor to figure out how much capital are you raising and are you doing a cost segregation study, that's available to you before you invest. Those are the only things that you need to get a general estimate as to what amount of bonus depreciation or what amount of tax loss is going to be passed back to you. And then it's just a matter of applying the passive activity loss rules to figure out if you can claim that tax loss. No, oh, awesome explanation. Awesome explanation. So one of the a sponsors- A little, little windy. Sorry about that. <laughs> hey, I mean, I think you have a video on, on YouTube too, where you walk through as well. So anybody who's uh, not checked out YouTube, uh, go ahead, check that out. Make sure you like, comment, and subscribe while you're there. <laughs> but- um, yeah, no. So I was lucky. I invested with the sponsor, with a syndicate uh, the, a fund last year in 2021. And they actually sent me my estimated share of allocation of losses for the year. So that was awesome. But uh, definitely a good way to estimate it because not every sponsor is going to do that for you. All right. So I think that's about it for today's episode. If you're looking to take advantage of bonus depreciation, just know that 2022 is the last year that 100% bonus depreciation will be in play. So that means you have to, if you're going, if you're planning to take advantage of that, you want to acquire and place properties into service before 1231, 2022. So the last day of this year, or you want to invest in a syndicate that's going to run cost segregation studies before that date as well. So uh, just something to keep in mind. Uh, happy investing. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.